Well, good morning. And every time the bells play, there, there's so much going on, it blows my mind. And Frida Earhart gets into her bells, I'll tell you right now. Thank y'all. Thank y'all for that this morning. You know, a few weeks ago, we started a brand new series called Call Upon His Name. And so for the past two weeks, we've been wrestling with and discovering these different ancient Hebrew names for God, because these ancient Hebrew names for God are full of significance and full of meaning. And we believe that these names of God, if we can understand them fully, really grasp them, they can transform and change the way that we pray within our life, because they're full of power. And so what we've been doing for these past few weeks is looking into a couple of these names. The first one we looked at is El Ra'i, the God who sees me. The God who sees me. This is an incredible name for God. But this name, El Ra'i, the God who sees me, if, if we believe this with our whole hearts, that we have a God who sees us, not just physically sees us. The way this is meant to be taken is he knows us. Inside and out, he sees us. This, this should free us up in our prayer life to be able to come to God vulnerable, to be able to say anything that we really feel, to be open with God about what's happening within our life. This should change the way that we pray. And last week, you had with you here in this room Grace Marie Ward. Anybody in the room, Grace Marie Ward, what a gift that she is to this church. She, I know she brought a great word here last week as we looked at Jehovah Raha, the God who is our shepherd. This is an incredible word as well, uh, expressing to us that we have a God who is a shepherd. That means we're sheep, and God's greatest desire is to lead us, to provide for us, to take care of us. And the question simply becomes, are we willing to follow him? willing to follow his lead. And she ended by talking about how uh, in the New Testament, Jesus talks about this, that we know the, the voice of the good shepherd. When we hear his voice, we follow him. And so what a great message for us as well. When we pray, do we know this good shepherd? Are we willing to come to him and say, would you take care of me? Would you help me follow you even when I don't want to? Because I know you know what's best for me. So these two names alone inform us about all kinds of things about who God is, because all of these names come from someone's personal experience with him. So throughout the Old Testament, anyone who writes these names and who expresses about this God in these kinds of ways and these certain names, because they've experienced him in a certain kind of way and has done something to them and they want to share it with other people. See, names have always been important, full of significance and full of meaning. Yesterday I had the chance to officiate a wedding here in this room. And um, it's been amazing because as I was a middle school pastor, I've been here almost 16 years now. As a middle school pastor years ago, I'm now having the chance to uh, do the wedding for some of these students that were mine in middle school. And yesterday was a middle school girl who's been here for a long time, and I had the chance to watch her grow up into the person that God has made her to be now. What a beautiful opportunity to stand before them as they commit themselves to marriage. And it took me back 10 years ago when my wife and I got married. And I remember going to the reception afterwards, and there was a table with all the gifts. You're like, sweet. And you walk into the reception, and and there's gifts and these cards, and on the cards it said this, Trevor and Jenna Miller. And I'd never seen Jenna's name without Owens after it, but Jenna Miller. It was, it was a powerful expression because what it said to everybody else in the world was Jenna is off the market. <laughs> She's taken by me. And so when you have a name change like that, what it says to everybody else is that she said yes to me and she said no to every other man in the world. And the truth is the same for me. I said yes to Jenna. I've said no to every other woman in the world because sometimes these names can express something exclusive. We are to each other and to each other alone. Names are full of power. Maybe even this morning you have a name that you were called when you were young. Maybe a nickname of some kind. It was, it was a happy kind of thing. It was encouraging. It lifted you up. And I remember the first time I heard my children call me daddy. Man, names are full of power. 
And sometimes it's the kind of power to encourage us and to keep us moving forward. But some of us in the room also, maybe you've been called something that's the opposite of that. Maybe there's been a name that you've been called that's not uplifting, but instead it's, it's, it's stinging and it hurts a little bit. Maybe it's come from someone close to you. There may be some in the room this morning that you've been living your entire life trying to live down a name that's been given to you that you didn't want to have. Maybe a stigma that's kept you from moving forward. And, and today we need to realize that names have power, both in the positive and sometimes the negative. The Hebrew people knew that there were power that existed within names. In fact, scholars tell us that there are probably 955 or more different names that are attributed to God within the scriptures. 955, which makes sense, right? You have all these writers, all these people who are experiencing God from their own perspective and in their own way. And they're saying, here's what God is like from my perspective. He's like this. He's like a shepherd. He's a God who sees me. And all of these names express something about who God is. The name we want to look at this morning actually shows up for the very first time in the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. And this name is the name El Elyon, the God Most High. El Elyon, the God Most High. This is a very interesting Hebrew name for God because this name is not just used to describe God. It's actually used in really mundane terms as well. This word is actually used within the scriptures to express something that is upper, or something that is higher. In fact, within scriptures, it's sometimes used to express when a basket is up on something. It's, it's upper. It's higher. But the same word is used to express what this God is like from their experience. This Jewish understanding in their culture of who God is. Because God is the God most high. He's higher. He's more powerful. He's superior to every other God around. Now, if you're a Jewish person growing up in Israel, you know there are gods that exist all around you, gods for everything. But when you express about this God as El Elyon, the God Most High, what you're saying is, far above superseding every other God around me, this is the one true God. He's the God Most High. But something happens after the book of Genesis throughout the Hebrew history that begins to threaten this particular name of God. And it takes place in 600 to 585 B.C. when the Jewish people are attacked by a people from Babylon. The Babylonians come in, maybe you know the story in the history of the Old Testament, but Babylon comes in and destroys everything and takes people captive and takes many of them back with them into Babylon to indoctrinate them into a new culture. In fact, this is what's known as the exile. And Babylon takes some of the best and the brightest from Israel and brings them back into Babylon. In fact, archaeological discoveries suggest that potentially 25% of all of Judah was displaced in some kind of way, taken away from Israel and brought back into Babylon. Now, if you're one of those folks who was taken from your homeland into this foreign land, everything changes for you. Everything is challenged from your diet to your worship. Everything changes in this new context. So the book of Daniel in the Old Testament is a book that's actually describing very clearly what this was like for the Jewish people to be in exile, to find themselves in a place that they should not be. And in the book of Daniel, there's a king of Babylon. His name is Nebuchadnezzar. Everyone say Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, starting in chapter 3 of Daniel, it's expressed that he at this point in time is beginning to exert his power over everyone in Babylon, including the Jewish people who are living in that place in captivity. Here's what it says in Daniel chapter 3, verse 1 through 6. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide. 
and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, and magistrates, everyone, every official to come to the dedication of this image that he has put up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, and magistrates, and all the provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. And then he says this, As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, it's a great instrument, you should try to play it, lyre, the harp, the pipe, any kind of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. So you're a Jew taken from your homeland, living in a foreign place. King Nebuchadnezzar puts together a golden statue that is 90 or 60 cubits high, which we don't operate in cubits anymore. So 90 feet high, nine feet wide. This is a massive undertaking. It's a massive image. It's a spectacle. And everyone is invited or commanded to come and be a part of this dedication of this statue. Now, all who come, this is the ancient Near Eastern way of saying, Listen, everyone, this is power and this is control. Nebuchadnezzar says, when you hear the trumpets, when you hear the pipe, when you hear the music play, everyone must bow down. This is not just about religion. This is actually about allegiance. This was any ancient Near Eastern nation's way of converting those who now lived in the country to their pagan religion, their pagan worship, but particularly to bow down before Nebuchadnezzar. There's a clear instruction made. When you hear the music, you bow down. No questions asked. Now, potentially for some of us in the room this morning, when we hear stories like this from the Bible, this can seem so ridiculous. I mean, why would people bow down and worship a statue that's made by human hands, that's made of gold, even if it's massive? Why would people—this is so primitive. But here's the truth this morning. We all worship something. We all worship something. Now, even those who would say they have no interest in God, we still worship something. And here's how I would define this. Anything in our life that gets our time, our energy, our attention, and our affection, where the majority of our life is focused, it's a very good intention, this is something that we worship. Whether it's God or something else, it's something that we worship. So if I had access to your calendars, your bank accounts, and your cell phones, that'd be creepy, but also... I'd be able to very quickly find out the things that you worship based upon the amount of time that you spend there, based upon the amount of finances that go there, based upon the amount of energy and affection that goes there. That's the thing that we worship. Now we can look at it happening in Babylon and feel like this is such a primitive, odd thing to do, but it happens in our culture every single day. Now maybe you're a family in the room, you know some of these things to be true. There's pressure every day to bow down to the God of travel baseball. To bow down to the God of bank accounts, the God of status, the God of relationships, the God of career, the God of Instagram and Facebook. The expectations are the same. When these gods ask you to bow, you do. And here's the problem. We do it every single day. Look at the amount of time, energy, affection, and attention we give to just these things. This is the culture's way of saying, listen, when the trumpet sounds, when you hear the music, you bow. That's what you do in the West. That's what you do in America. 
just this past week, I was having lunch with some friends, and we began to discuss this odd thing that we do in our culture, and that is if you want to buy a house first, you have to prove you have what? Credit. Now, what's interesting to me is we want to be people who are fiscally responsible, right? Which would suggest that someone would not have a credit card if they're fiscally responsible. But instead, we say, if you want to spend money to buy a house, you better get a credit card and put some money on that thing. How odd. But if you want to play in this culture, you better do it. You better get a credit card, and you better put money on that thing. We also discussed how there were some parents last week that we were having a discussion with, and they were saying that their fourth grader is the only kid in their class who doesn't have a cell phone. And everyone's pressuring this child to get a cell phone because they don't know what's going on. They're not connected. And these parents were saying, we don't think she needs one. But the pressure was this, uh-uh, you want to fit in? You better get a phone and get it at least fourth grade, if not under. How do we push back against that? I see on Facebook, on social media, on Instagram, every single day, people that I love and care for who are trying so hard to post something that will receive some kind of attention, some amount of likes, some kind of follows. And here's the truth. It is exhausting. And many of us in this room this morning, I can tell by the groans, we know what it's like to live in this culture and to feel like in order for us to make it somehow, we have to bow down when whatever it is says, bow down to show your allegiance, your time, your attention, your affection to worship. Now, there's two chapters that take place before we get to chapter 3 in Daniel. Before Nebuchadnezzar gives this decree, the first two chapters we find out there's a, a group of four young Jewish folks living in Babylon. One's name is Daniel, one is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These four different Jewish friends are living in this culture in the middle of what's going on here. In fact, three chapters later in chapter 6, Daniel, one of the four, he's arrested and thrown into a lion's den. And if you grew up in the church, you probably heard this story as a kid. He's thrown into a lion's den so that he can be eaten simply because he didn't do what was expected of him. In fact, if you look at the story, he was caught because the king had made a decree that no one should pray, period, unless it's to him or an image of him. And guess what Daniel does? The Bible says in chapter 6, he goes and he kneels down three times a day to pray just as he has always done before. I want you to see something this morning. There is no more in-your-face way, no more powerful way that we as Christians prove that we trust in El Elyon, the God Most High, other than the times that we spend time praying. Because it suggests that we don't put our trust and our hope in something else. Our faith and our hope and our trust is only in who? The God Most High. This is what Daniel gets in trouble for. This is what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are about to get in trouble for. And oftentimes, this is what we get in trouble for. You see, during this series, we've been talking about what would it look like for us as a church, every one of us, to see the importance of being a prayer-driven people. One of our core values as a church, to be prayer-driven, to express daily that we trust in El Elyon, the God Most High. You see, our prayers are an indication of what we worship. Our prayers are an indication of what we worship, based upon what we pray about and how we pray. So you have in the Bible, Daniel himself, you have me, you have you. And when we pray, we are saying specifically to the world, we do not care about your cultural norms. We, we don't care about what is politically correct in expression. Because we place our, our faith and our hope and trust in Jesus. 
and God himself, and for him and him alone we will bow, period. This is what's talked about in Daniel chapter 3. I saw this expressed for me as a young child. My whole family has grown up within the church. I was in the church often. But one of my favorite things, thinking back as a kid, it wasn't my favorite thing at the time because I was very young. My grandmother occasionally would take me with, to, with her to a prayer meeting in a house behind our church, to one of our pastor's house. And I'd walk into the house. I was, I was young at this time, and there was many um, seasoned individuals in the room, maybe eight to ten or so. And we would sit down, and we would have this time of prayer. And I remember sitting with my grandmother and watching everybody pray, and to be honest, bored out of my mind. But occasionally I would get this glimpse of what was happening here. And I would look around at all these folks that were praying, and what I would see oftentimes is tears coming down their cheeks. They would read scripture sometimes, they would pray. They would pray these bold prayers for their family, for our church, and for our country, for our community. And what, what struck me the most as I watched them pray is I believed that they knew exactly who they were talking to. They knew him. This was not something that was rote. This was not something they just did because they had nothing else to do. This came exactly out of an expression of the worship they had for El Elyon, the God Most High. And so even as a kid watching these folks pray in this way and watching others pray in this way, it challenged me from the very get-go to recognize there is nothing more important than for me to realize God is above everything. God is above everyone, and I must put him first. My assumption in the room this morning is that maybe one of the reasons some of us struggle so much with prayer, maybe one of the reasons that some of us struggle so much to spend time talking to God is if we're honest, God is not the one who gets our time, our attention, and our affection. God is actually the not the one who we worship. We worship something else. And if we're honest, for a lot of us, we put our trust in other things. We put our trust in the bank account. We put our trust in the friendships. We put our trust in the career. We put our trust in all these other things. So, of course, we wouldn't spend time speaking to the one that we would believe to be above everything. So we would bring everything to him as we pray. So the king makes this decree that everyone will bow down as the music plays. And if you don't, there'll be, there'll be something to pay for this. Here's what it says in Daniel chapter 3, verse 12 now. Someone tattletales on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and says this, But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province in Babylon. They were, they were put over certain things that were happening in Babylon. They were wonderful people. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He said, You who pay no attention to you, your majesty, they neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. Everyone bows down when the music plays except for these three individuals. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, we will never bow down. Again, they're Jews. And their understanding of God is El Elyon, the God most high. There is no one above him, no one who supersedes him. So no matter what you say to us, no matter what you tell us to do, we will never bow down and show allegiance there. Our allegiance is only to God. And this is the way they respond. Here's what I know to be true in this story as I watch this unfold. Here's what I know to be true in our culture as well. And it's very simple. People take notice when you won't bow a knee. People will take notice when you won't bow a knee. And here's what I mean. Our culture consecutively, consistently has shown to be unfavorable toward people who are dedicated to prayer. I've watched within my own lifetime as prayer has been removed from the schools from the football fields, from the city council. 
even very recently in recent years, whenever there's a tragedy of some kind, a shooting or a hurricane, I've seen people be ridiculed because they might say, we're praying for these folks. Here's what I have a deep conviction about. I believe that we can pray and we can also make hard decisions to make our country safe. I believe that we can pray and still show up with nails and hammers ready to rebuild after a storm. Amen? We can do both. One thing does not mean you can't do the other. But for some reason, when it comes to prayer, too often the response is one of the two. Either it's positive or it can be negative. But either way, it's always noticed. People take notice when you won't bow a knee. And you only do it to God. But there's repercussions for refusing to bow. And Nebuchadnezzar becomes furious at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for their unwillingness to bow, as everyone else does. So he threatens the men's life. And he asks this very curious question as he threatens them. He says, you will find yourself in the furnace. And then he says this, what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? What God would be able to rescue you from my hand? Do you see the kind of way this king sees the world? He has all power. He has all control. So if I throw you in the furnace, what God is going to rescue you from my hand? And I love how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego respond. Here's what they say in Daniel 3, 16 through 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this manner. Just so you know, King, we don't have to defend ourselves. We've made this decision. We're not going back, and we're not going to explain it to you. And they say this, If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But then they say this, But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. What a powerful statement. We have a God, just so you know, King, who could rescue us from this furnace and rescue us from your hand. But then they say this, but even if he does not, we still will never bow down. This is why this, this phrase is so interesting to me. What they're saying is, we don't just trust in El Elyon because he's going to rescue us. We don't just trust him because he makes our life easy. We trust him because he knows better than we know. We trust him because he's the God most high. And so if he sees fit to not rescue us, we still will never bow down. We still will never worship. That's powerful. What do you do when people have that kind of attitude? Nothing. There's nothing that you can do. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say this, we'll never bow. We believe in God and God alone. You see, faith is the simplest form of trust. Faith is the simplest form of trust. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego put it on display. If you say that your God is the God most high, then what you're saying is we trust you with our entire lives. We trust you with everything, even when it doesn't make sense. My conviction this morning is this. There are some of us in this room today who've refused to bring to God in prayer some of the biggest things within our life. You see, for some of us, it's much easier just to pray over our meal before we eat because that's safe. And for some of us, it's easy to pray with our kids before we go to bed because that's safe too. But for some of us, we are so reluctant to bring to God the biggest things within our life. And here's why. In the end, we don't really know if we can trust him. What happens if I ask you, God, to move in a certain kind of way and you don't? 
what happens, God, if I ask you to do this certain thing and I ask for this certain outcome and it doesn't happen, then what? I think the scripture helps me with this when they say, our God can rescue us. But even if he doesn't, he knows better. And so this morning, I want to I do something that is a little different. Um, I, I want to just spend a moment in prayer. And my goal would be to ask God that for any of us in this room this morning who have lost this trust in him, this faith to believe in him, and to bring the biggest things of our life to him, and the smallest too, that he would reignite that within our hearts. So would you, would you pray with me for just a moment? Let's, let's pray. God, I confess that too often the way that I live my life, I say loud and clear that I don't believe that you are the God most high. Too often, God, I find myself trusting in all kinds of other gods, all kinds of other things, rather than putting my faith and my trust and my hope in you. And I believe, God, if I'm, if I'm feeling this way, I'm not the only one. So, Father, by your spirit right now, I pray you would awaken hearts in this room that maybe have grown cold, that have grown hard, that have given up bringing any kind of big thing to you, God, because we feel like we've been let down before. I pray that you would help us to bring all of these things to you, trusting you that you can do anything. And the very same time, realizing that if you choose not to, you know better than we know. Because you are the God most high. We declare it together this morning. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So they're threatened. They won't give in. And so Nebuchadnezzar says, here's what we're going to do. I want you to make that furnace seven times hotter. They're bound. Some of the soldiers who take Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to throw them into the fire, they actually burn up themselves. That's how hot the furnace is. They're thrown into the furnace, and what happens next is a shock to everybody who's standing there. Here's what Daniel 3, 24 to 25 says. It says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw in the fire? They replied, Certainly, your majesty. Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like the son of the gods. So there were three in the fire, right? Then there were four. There was a fourth in the fire. You know, most scholars agree this is what's called a theophany. It's a manifestation of God in the flesh. Some believe this is actually a, a pre-incarnation of Jesus here in the Old Testament, walking in the fire and rescuing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You see, God didn't keep the three out of the fire, but guess what? He went into the fire with them. He went to the fire with them. Last week, I had the heartbreaking privilege over the past few months to walk alongside of a family as their mother and wife died of cancer. Last week, I went over to the house just the day before she passed away the next morning, and um, it was kind of becoming obvious we were coming to the end. And so someone within the family went to the room where her two elementary boys were, and we're going to tell the boys that this was kind of coming to an end. This is, this is going to be it. And the one son looked at the person that came in the room and said, listen, I just want you to know that um, I know God's placed his hand on my shoulder and he told me that it's going to be okay. And they walked out of the room. 
I know in this room this morning, there are probably many who could tell a story of a time where you've gone through some of the darkest times of your life. You felt like you were in the midst of a furnace. You felt like you were going through the most difficult time you've ever gone through. And if you're anything like me, there have been these times where I can't, I can't tangibly tell you, I can't, I can't even express it sometimes in words, but I've had this deep sense that I'm not by myself, that there's someone there with me. This, this is what happens when you trust and you believe in El Elyon, the God Most High. Even though you might find yourself in the furnace, you're not there alone. God's presence is there with you every step of the way. There might be some here this morning who just need to hear this. You are not alone in the things that you're going through. In the greatest times of need, we might find that we're not there by ourselves. But God is with us every step of the way. In fact, as we get closer and closer to Christmas, we'll remember once again, as Jesus was born, he was given a name. Do you remember this name? Emmanuel means what? God with us. Expressed in the Old Testament as God spoke and was with his people. Jesus himself in the flesh walking among his people. And now us with the Spirit of God living and dwelling inside of us. God does not get closer than that. Being here with us and in us. No matter what you're going through today, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you might find yourself in a tough spot, but you are not there alone. The God Most High is with you. He can rescue you, but even if he does not, he's still good. He still cares for you. He still loves you. Here's what Daniel chapter 3, the end of the story says in verse 26. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. Do you notice something there? The very king who just spent untold amounts of wealth and power and influence trying to get everyone in Babylon to worship him as God says to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego what? Your God, the God most high. Here's the thing. If God can take Nebuchadnezzar, a king of Babylon, who has all power and all might, to bend his knee and say, truly, God is the God most high, what can't God do? What can't God do? I believe if we could fully experience and express this ancient name of God, the God who is the most high, it would change the way that we pray. I think in two really specific ways. Number one, we would begin to pray with audacious faith. To ask for big things. To trust God with big things. You see, our prayers are an indication of what we think about God. You know what I think about God? He's big. He's powerful. He's the God most high. My son Owen, who's five, has started to have nightmares. And every day he, he talks about them. And so at night when we lay down in the bed, he'll, he'll often ask me to pray. He'll say, God, would you please, or Daddy, would you please pray to God and ask him to help me have dreams about jet skis? Like, yeah, that sounds good. Me too. And so we'll pray that God will give him dreams about jet skis and no more nightmares. You know what I love about it? It's childlike faith. It's a kid who sees God. They can do anything. Even help me to have different dreams than I've been having. Would you ask him, Dad? Would you pray to him? Audacious faith. God, you can do anything, and we trust you to do anything. 
Secondly, I think it would change our prayer life because we would begin to realize that nothing is impossible for God. Nothing is impossible for God. And they said, he can rescue us, but even if he doesn't, there's nothing that's impossible for him. Many years ago, we knew a family, my family, were friends with a family who had a young boy named Davy Donner in the family. And the, they had gotten a goldfish, and then the goldfish had died, as they do. And for a few days, it floated upside down in the bowl, and they finally realized it was time to do something about this. So the family got together to have a little ceremony in the bathroom, and so they put the fish in the toilet, and everyone gathered around, and they asked if anyone had any final words. And so, of course, everyone said, thank you for the past few months with our goldfish. And then they asked Davy, would you like to, to say anything? And Davy said, I want to pray. And so Davy, this little boy, prayed that God would heal his goldfish, and I'm not lying. The goldfish came back to life in the toilet <laughs> for three days. I'm not saying it's a spiritual thing. I'm just saying it happened for three days. And then it died again. But what's interesting to me is, again, you have a little boy who believes that anything is possible, even if it means his goldfish comes back to life. How many of us, we have given up a long time ago on any kind of faith that would cause us to say, God, you can do anything, and so I will ask you to move and work in my life in everything, the big and the small. As we've been saying for the past few weeks, these Old Testament names of God are expressed within the New Testament in some kind of way, always within the person of Jesus. And we see this one as we travel from the furnace to the cross. You see, Jesus walked this earth. He was accused falsely. He was arrested. He was crucified. And the power of the Roman government, the power of the religious elite, the power of evil came over him and crucified him and killed him on the cross. And it looked like defeat until three days later. He didn't stay dead, did he? Jesus rose from the grave. And what he said to the world was, there is nothing that can hold me, not even death itself. I want to ask you a question. If death can't hold Jesus, if nothing can stop Jesus, what can stop him now? Nothing. Nothing is impossible for our God. So whether it's a cross and the victory of resurrection, whether it's the furnace and the victory of incredible trust, the scriptures tell us this way. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, it says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the very power of God. See, we have a God and Jesus who gave up his very life and rose again. And it's a symbol and a reminder to us that there is nothing that can stop him. And here's the thing, the world will never understand that. It's never understood it from the very beginning of time, so why would it get it now? That what looks like defeat is actually victory. And too often when we find ourselves in the fiery furnace, it's waiting for a resurrection. But would we have the faith to believe and hope and trust that God can move in our life still? Would you pray with me? God, thank you. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you. Thank you that you are the God most high, who's above everything, supreme over all. And today, God, for some of us, we just need, we just need your help to believe once again and to have trust once again that you can do anything. 
God, we pray that you would help us to bow our knee only to you. May nothing else receive our time, our energy, our affection, our attention. May it all go to you because you are truly the only one who's worthy of our worship. We love you, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.